The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. This section of scripture that we're in today is one of those that's difficult simply because it's a narrative about Paul and it's Paul explaining why he did what he did that the Corinthians are angry with him about. They're upset with him because he didn't carry through with the promise they thought he was making. And so he gives an explanation. Let me read it first and we'll come back. Uh, if you'll turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12. For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. For we write nothing else to you than what you read and understand, what you read and understand, and I hope you will understand until the end. They've misunderstood him, and he's trying to correct this. Just as you also partially did understand us, that we are your reason to be proud, as you also are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus. In this confidence, I intended at first to come to you so that you might twice receive a blessing. That is to pass your way into Macedonia and again from Macedonia to come to you. This would be like Paul writing from Fresno and saying, I'm, I promised you I was going to come through Brentwood and then go up to Sacramento and then I'd come back from Sacramento and pass through and spend some time with you and then you could send me on my way. But he didn't do that. And he didn't do that because the situation changed. And they're upset about it. They think that he, there are people in the church at Corinth that are very critical of him and are trying to convince the congregation that you can't trust Paul. He says one thing and does another. And I'll explain to you why that's important to Paul. And so he says in verse 17, Therefore I was not vacillating when I intended to do this. Was I? Or what purpose do I purpose according to the flesh so that with me there will be yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? In other words, I don't tell you things that I don't mean to carry out. You probably have people do that to you. I've done that to people before. They say, could you come over on Sunday? We're going to have some friends over. Could you make it? Sure. And then you call them two days later and say, well, we can't make it. Knowing all the time, you couldn't make it. I'm sure some of you do that too. And so Paul and so Paul is explaining himself. And verse 18, but as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but yes in him. For as many as are the promises of God in Christ, they are yes. Therefore also through him is our amen, which just means yes, to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you is in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. But I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you I did not come again to Corinth, not that we lorded over your faith, but are workers with you for your joy, for in your faith you are standing firm. I want to show you why this is so important to Paul, that they not have the wrong opinion of him. It's because of who he is and his relationship to them. If you have read the book of Acts, then you probably know that 
Paul is the one who first took the gospel to Corinth. And uh, when he first went there, it looked like he was going to experience what he'd experienced in several cities on his way there, be thrown into jail for preaching the gospel. But the Lord Jesus appears to him that very night and says, don't be afraid. I have many people in this city. Stay here and preach the gospel. And that's what he did. And many people came to faith, and this church was formed at Corinth. And then uh, Paul went on his way, and uh, he wrote them a short letter at first. We don't have it. It's, it isn't in existence, but he wrote them a short letter after this just to affirm what he had preached to them. And the, the Corinthians responded by sending a letter to him with all kinds of questions. They had all kinds of questions about what they ought to be doing as Christians believing the gospel. And so Paul writes in response to that, 1 Corinthians. And if you notice, when you read 1 Corinthians, it's filled with answers to specific questions. And when he says, now regarding this, he's responding to their questions. But then Paul had a painful visit, he calls it, to Corinth, and that was because there was sin in the church, and he wanted to correct it. And so he went there, and he had to confront them about sin in the church. There were several things that were told about in 1 Corinthians. For example, the way they were taking communion. They gathered together to, at the Lord's table as a congregation, and the rich were over on this side of the building eating wonderful food, and the poor were over on this side of the building starving. And then they would come together and, and take communion. And so he confronts them about this, and he tells them, this is serious. In fact, the Lord will bring chastisement upon you for this, because you are you are living in a way, you're acting a way that contradicts the truth of the Lord's table. And there was another big problem in the church. There was a man there that was living in open sin in violation of God's clear commands and Christ's clear commands, and the church was too proud to confront him about it. And so Paul tells them that they needed to do something about it, and so they confront this man. They actually discipline him out of the church because he's living in continual sin. And at first he wouldn't repent. And so Paul had gone there to confront this issue, and he left. And then he, and then he hears what he does. He follows up this visit with a severe letter, it's called. He calls it a letter that confronts them and drives home uh, what they needed to understand and what they needed to do about it. Now, none of us like people telling us that what we are doing is wrong and we need to change. I don't like it, and you don't like it. And yet, this is exactly what the Apostle Paul had to do in this situation. And so, he follows up with this letter we're reading now, 2 Corinthians. And he's explaining why he postponed coming to see them. And it was basically this. Because he had confronted them about sin in the church. He didn't want to go back too soon. He wanted them to digest what he had confronted them about and what he wrote to them in a follow-up letter about so that they would do something about this sin. He actually cared how they felt about him. Why? Why? Why is he so concerned about how they feel about him? Well, let me show you. Would you turn to Ephesians chapter 4 for just a second? Ephesians chapter 4. The New Testament teaches that every single Christian has a spiritual gift, which is an ability that, that the Spirit gives to believers when they come to Christ in order to serve Christ in this world, in the church, and in the world. Uh, and Paul mentions 20 different specific gifts. The Apostle Peter says there's basically two kinds of spiritual gifts. There is speaking gifts and there is serving gifts. 
But in Ephesians 4, Paul mentions five kinds of men that Christ gave to the church as gifts to the church. And I want you to listen to this, verse 11. Let's read from verse 11. It says back in verse 10 that when he ascended on high, he gave gifts to men. He gave gifts to the church. And here are the gifts. He, he describes them as being people that he's giving to the church for a specific function. So he says in verse 11, he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. And then he tells you why he gave them for the equipping of the saints unto so that they can do the work of ministry and build up the body of Christ. So he gives the church these five kinds of believers, five kinds of men, the apostles, which Paul is an apostle, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And the role of these five kinds of men that Christ gave to the church was to equip the saints so that they could do the work of ministry that they had been gifted to do. Now, why is that necessary? This word, to equip the saints, the word equip there means, is used in other places in the New Testament, for example, of mending nets, fishing nets. So what happened was the fishing net would break and it would be, there'd be holes in it and so forth. And so they had to mend the nets continually. And the idea was they had to get the net back into the condition so that it could function according to its design. Right? You understand that. It needed, they needed to be mended, fixed, so that, they, so that it functioned the way it should. What he's talking about is that God gave to the church these kinds of men so that the body of Christ, not just individually but corporately, would be equipped as a body in order to do the work of service, to do the work of ministry. A lot of times in the American church, we have this idea, people think this way, it's like, uh, well, yeah, we have just regular people, lay people, and then we have reverends, you know, we have the clergy, we have people that are specially set apart to do ministry. The problem with that is the Bible teaches that all of you who know Christ, all of you who have come to faith in Christ, have the Holy Spirit, and he has gifted you to serve Christ in this world, in the church, and in the community that you live in. He's gifted you. Paul mentions 20 of these gifts. Uh, you know, like the gift of teaching, the gift of giving, the gift of encouragement, and so forth. And so the purpose of Christ giving to the church these five kinds of men is so that they would equip the church to fulfill the ministry that he has called us to. And here's one of the problems that takes place with, among the people of God is the, the net tears. <laughs> uh, believers' relationships tear apart. And there's the kind of separation there shouldn't be. I can remember a conversation with a guy some years back who was over a ministry, and he came to me and says, man, I got a problem. What is it? Two people in the ministry at each other's throats. Every time we get together, they argue with each other, and they're angry with each other. And he says, I don't know what to do. And I said, well, you need to get them together and sit down and talk with them and call them to repentance in their attitude towards each other. And he was like about to have an anxiety attack, thinking about what it would be like to have to talk to these two people whose gender I won't uh, disclose 
But he was so intimidated that he didn't want to do it. And it was only by faith in what I showed him in the Word of God that he actually attempted this. This is what these men, these apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers were supposed to do. They were supposed to work with the, with the people of God so that they would be rightly related together and to the Lord so that we can do the work of ministry. You know, the Bible teaches that, for example, this little church, we are like a lampstand in this community in, in East Contra Costa County. And there's a ton of us. There's a bunch of churches out here, and we are to be lampstands. That is, we are to live together in our relationships and our lives that would display the truth about the life of Jesus Christ. We are to be the kind of people that when people get exposed outside of the faith, get exposed to us, they'd say, wow, that's the kind of life I would like to experience. Those are the kind of relationships I'd like to experience. I'll never forget a guy told me that he and some friends used to go down to the Baptist church in town that he lived at when they had business meetings so they could see them fight. They loved the arguments and people getting all riled up and yelling at each other. I could have said any other kind of church, the Presbyterians or the Pentecostals, it doesn't matter. And here's the problem with that, that we have been, we have been saved and brought together as the people of God. We've been baptized into the body of Christ, so we're all members of the same body, and yet we've been gifted differently. So within the body of Christ, we have people who do have the gift of, of teaching. We have, the people who, we have people who have the gift of giving. We have people who have the gift of exhortation and so forth. But if we're not getting along with each other, if there's rifts within the body of Christ, then we're not going to be able to fulfill this calling that he's given us. And by the way, this sermon has nothing to do about anything I know of that's going on within this flock. It's the text. It's just here. This is where we are in 2 Corinthians. But this is what the apostles and those others that I mentioned, uh, mentioned the prophets and the evangelists and the pastors and teachers, this is what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be equipping people so that they can do the work of ministry. That's a scary thought. That's a scary thought. That that's the kind of effect we're supposed to have as pastors, for example. We're supposed to equip people for ministry. The reason that churches support pastors is not because they're doing ministry. It's because they're equipping the saints to do ministry. Now, they do ministry. It is a ministry what they do. But the point is, if we're not equipping people to do the work of ministry, we are failing at what we've been called to do. And there is no way to live the Christian life without fulfilling the work of ministry together with fellow believers. I had dinner yesterday with a guy that I worked with for 15 years, and and as we were talking about things, I, I, it, it just brought to mind that I can remember in those early days how just being with him when he did ministry affected me so deeply. It, it left such a mark on my life. Watching him do the work of ministry and me being right there with him. He was equipping me for ministry. And this is what we're supposed to be doing. This is why Paul is so concerned about their attitude towards him. Because word has come back to Paul that they think you're flaky. That you say you're going to do something and then you don't do it. And so he writes this explanation because he wants them to know that he has integrity. When people 
when people come to the conclusion that you don't have integrity, it is very difficult for them to ever change their mind about that. What happens is Paul's going to describe it as a veil that's over their eyes. Pretty soon they're looking through this lens. They've been hurt by you for some reason. And a lot of times I can tell you it happens. You don't even know it's happened. And somebody's slighted for some reason. And so the way they view you is through this lens of their hurt. And everything you do seems to be wrong in their mind. So, for example, every personal reference is your conceited. you got a big ego. Uh, you're power hungry. That's what these people were saying about Paul. This is why Paul ends this chapter by saying, Oh, we don't want to lord it over your faith. We want to be co-workers with your joy. Uh, Pastors, even apostles, didn't dictate. They didn't take the place of Christ in the life of people. Every Every one of you believers has a relationship with Jesus Christ. He is your Lord. He's given us the assignment to equip you as the people of God to do the work of ministry so that the body of Christ will be built up, that we would grow and mature in the faith. Now, um, it's kind of like this. I, I have a grandson who's in the sixth grade, and he plays basketball, so I go to sixth grade basketball games. And let me tell you, it's hard to find a sixth grade basketball team who's well coached. <laughs> it's like, uh, it's amazing how, how difficult it is to coach a sixth grade team. Because you've got some kids that are very coordinated and got good hand-eye coordination, all that. But, man, they're just all over the place. So you watch the team, and it reflects the coach, doesn't it? Well, this is what pastors are supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be relating to people in such a way as what the apostles are supposed to be doing. Relating to people in such a way that they learned to work together in the vineyard that God has placed them. They learned to love each other, forgive each other. Put up with each other. That's one of the expressions Paul uses. Uh, Jack Miller used to say, he was a guy who said, cheer up, you're worse than you think, and God, the gospel is much better than you ever thought. But he also said this, if anybody who is criticizing me is speaking half-truths because I'm twice as bad as they know. There's a lot of truth in that, isn't it? And that's why we believe in the grace of God. That's why we believe in the gospel. God's method of saving people is not to work with them until they get perfect and ready for heaven, and then he accepts them, is he calls them to faith in Jesus Christ. And then as believers, as we follow Christ, we grow. And we grow not only individually, but corporately. I'm sure we have said this before, uh, and we keep, we'll keep on saying it. In the New Testament... Most of the commandments that come to us are corporate commandments. And we don't notice that because back when we all read King James, the King James Version, you could tell the difference between a singular you and a plural you. A singular you was thee and thou, and a plural you, when he was talking to the whole group, was you. So, for example, in in, uh, Jude, when he says, uh, building yourselves up in the most holy faith, it's a plural. It's talking about us building one another up in the most holy faith. I don't know if you're aware of it, but as a believer, as you grow in the faith, you're supposed to be teaching others how to follow Christ. In other words, not only do you follow Christ, but you can explain why you do what you do. That's what we're all called to. 
the book of Hebrews says, for the time you ought to be teachers, you need someone else to teach you the most basic principles of the Christian faith. So that implies clearly that every single one of you are called to live in such a way that you can explain why you do what you do in your Christian walk to a younger believer. So Paul's very concerned about this. He's concerned that their attitude towards him is he's a flake and you can't trust him because he knows they need to trust him because he is God's instrument to bring the word of God to them. He's not their Lord. He is a a man that has been set apart to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now, I'd like to just go down through the text real quickly. Uh, And first, just notice what Paul is saying here. This is in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. In verses 12 through 14, he he wants to assure them of his integrity. He's telling them, basically, I acted with sincerity. You know what integrity is. An integer is a whole number. Not a fraction, but a whole number. And a, a man who has integrity is a man who is not divided. He doesn't say yes and no at the same time. He doesn't pretend to be this, but he's really this. And so Paul wants them to know that he has integrity. He has spoken to them with integrity. He wants to convince them that his recent actions, the change of plans, arose from sincere motives because he loved them, not because he didn't want to minister to them. Now notice in verse 12, he says, my motives were godly. The actions did not arise from motives that drive unbelievers like self-serving ambition. This is what he writes. I'm reading this from a very simple translation. We can say with confidence, Paul says in verse 12, and a clear conscience that we have lived with a God-given holiness and sincerity in all our dealings. We have depended on God's grace, not on our own human wisdom. This is how we have conducted ourselves before the world and especially in regards to you. And then in verse 13, he says, my communion was on, my communication to you that I was coming was honest some were saying that in, in order to understand Paul's letters, you had to read between the lines. In other words, he didn't speak plainly. He wanted to, he wanted to write in a way you thought he meant, said one thing, but he really meant something else. And so he responds in verse 13, our letters have been straightforward and there's nothing written between the lines and nothing you can't understand. I hope someday you will fully understand us because you have a wrong opinion about us. Then in verse 14, he says, my love for you is real. Even though his letter to them had been straightforward, they had not grasped the greatness of his love for them and how proud he was of them because they were following Christ. And here's what he says in verse 14. Even if you don't understand us now, on that day when Jesus comes, you will be proud of us in the same way that we are proud of you. He said in 1 Thessalonians, you are our crown of rejoicing. See, this is what one of the things that pastors have to do is love the flock. The Bible doesn't, uh, doesn't teach clergy laity. In fact, the word kleros, from which we get the word clergy, is used of the people of God, not the leaders. And there's no, there's no distinction. We are in the sense that we are just believers who've been given this assignment, this role. But we're certainly not three stages above you. And so we want to act in sincerity. And so Paul tells them, you are our crown of rejoicing. Uh, we minister to you because we love you and we want to see you grow in the faith and come to be enriched in your relationship with Christ. And then Paul, in verses 15 through 22, he talks about his consistency. He wasn't inconsistent in what he did. And he tells him in verses 15 and 16, I changed my plans for your good. 
Not for my good, but for your good. And this is what he says. Now, what had happened was, because he had confronted them so recently, he didn't want to go back too soon. You know how that is when you've had to confront somebody about something they don't really want to hear, and you come back the next day, it's too soon. You need to let it sink in, and that's what he was saying. And so he writes in in verse 15 and 16, Since I was so sure of your understanding and trust, I wanted to give you a double blessing by visiting you twice. First on my way to Macedonia, which was up north of Corinth, and again when I returned from Macedonia. Then you could send me on my way to Judea. That's what he wanted to do because he cared about them. He liked to be around them. He wanted to be with them. He wanted to have fellowship with them. And then he says in verse 17, you got two rhetorical questions here that both expect a negative answer. Listen to what he says. You may be asking why I changed my plan. Do you think I make my plans carelessly? And the answer is no. And he puts it in that kind of form. He expects a negative answer. He doesn't make his plans carelessly. He goes on, do you think I am like people of the world who say yes when they really mean no? You know people like that, don't you? When they say yes and they really mean no? They don't give you a straight answer. Paul says, I'm not like that. That's not what I did. And in verse 18, he associates himself with God to reinforce his argument. He says, as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. As surely as God is faithful, our word to you does not waver between yes and no. See, he he wants them to understand he's been consistent. Uh, it's it's, It's not a... the consistency is not only a trait of God the Father, it's a trait of God the Son. The promises of God are yes and amen. If you find out about what God has promised you as a follower of Christ, you will be amazed at what God has in store for you. And he's actually going to fulfill those promises. And the promises referred to here properly are the ones that they found their fulfillment in Christ. God was completely trustworthy. Not 90%, not 95%, 100% fully reliable. You can bank on it. And so he says in verse 20, for all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes, and through Christ our amen, which means yes, exceeds, ascends to God for his glory. Now, the reason he does this is he has taught them to say amen. We've never taught you guys to say amen. We just figured you'd catch on. But when you hear something true, it's good to say amen. In the early church, the entire church would say amen when somebody said something truthful. But you see, there was a lot more um, participation in the services, and so different people would step up, and they would, and they would communicate to the flock something that God was really working in their heart from the Word, and everybody would say, Amen. You guys have a hard time doing that, I know. It's really tough on you to uh, respond. Amen? Amen. Yeah, that's right. That's what I thought. And then verses 21 and 22, he taught them to, to do this. And then in verses 23 and 24, he tells his motivation. Why, what was he motivated by? Why did he do what he did? Why did he delay? said he was coming, and then he delayed it. He says, I acted out of love. In fact, he gives an oath just to communicate the seriousness, that this, the seri- how serious this is to him and his own sincerity. And he says, now I call upon God as my witness that I'm telling you the truth. The reason I didn't return to Corinth was to spare you from a severe rebuke because they hadn't repented yet. And he says, I don't want to come back and, and rebuke you again I want to give you time to repent and turn from this sin. 
Now, we don't know exactly what the sin was. I think the hint that we're going to see the next time when 2 Corinthians is that a man that he had to confront them about who was living in sin, and they did confront this man, and they put him out of the fellowship because he continued to live in this, this sin that even those outside the church says that's wrong. But then the man repented, and they didn't forgive him, and they didn't back into the flock. So he's going to tell them in the next chapter, that's, that's Satan's work. Satan's trying to get you not to forgive this brother who has repented of his sin and turned. You see, the fact is we are a fellowship of the forgiven. We've all been forgiven, and we're being forgiven all the time because we keep confessing our sins. And you say, well, why don't you quit confessing your sins? Because you need forgiveness. So we confess our sins. We live a life of repentance and confession, and we experience the forgiveness of God. This is what John writes in 1 John 1. He says, if you walk in the light, which includes the fact that I'm transparent with God, I don't lie to him about my life. He says, if you walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus is continually cleansing us from all that has the quality of sin. Because sin will break your fellowship. You can't be rebelling against God, disobeying his commands, and expect that you have a close, intimate walk with him. If you're living in disobedience to him, you're not experiencing fellowship with him. And so John says we have to walk in real transparency before him, and we confess our sins, and we have this confidence that he'll forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, Paul's claim, he takes on himself um, the responsibility for their welfare, and listen to what he says in verse 24. But that does not mean... We want to dominate you by telling you how to put your faith into practice. We don't want to lord it over you. We want to work together with you so that you will be, you will be full of joy, for it is by your own faith that you stand firm. You see, he he's, wants to clarify. He's an apostle. That's what he says. I was, we are workers with you. We're, we're men. We're not infallible or sinless. And yet God has placed us in this, in this position to be those who equip you for life and ministry as followers of Jesus Christ. So we don't want to treat you as though we're Lord over you. I mean, we're not, we're not, the reason we confronted you about sin isn't like we're, we're running your life. We're telling you the truth. It's really hard to be confronted about sin in our life. It's harder to confront somebody about sin in their life. It's very difficult. You have to trust the Spirit to do that. Because as you're confronting them about their sin, you are fully aware of the kind of sin that God has forgiven you of, and the kind of tendencies you have. And so uh, Paul says, we're not trying to lord it over you. We want you to have joy. This is the, this is the goal of our ministry to you, is that you come to be equipped for the, for the life of ministry, as, a, as the body of Christ, and it will produce joy in your hearts. The word joy is used in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians as often as it is used in Philipp, Philippians, which is a book about joy. Paul is telling them, we want your joy. That's why we want you to obey. A Christian cannot live in disobedience to Christ and have joy. It's impossible. The only way you can have joy is walking in obedience to his commands. Now, the reason for that is, 
is you understand who it is who's commanding you. For example, one of the commands in Ephesians 4, for example, is we have to stop lying to each other and speak truth one to another because we're members of one another. That's a command that comes to us through Paul and it's command of Christ. Now, that's, that's kind of tough because, you know, in so many relationships, you can just, you can pretend all kinds of things are true just to get along with people. They don't have to know all the truth about you for you to get along. You know, we have this surface relationship. So we have to, we get together, we see each other in these certain circumstances, so I don't have to really be honest with you. But Paul says, as Christians, as followers of Christ, we have to speak truth to one another. Not just because we don't want to be carrying around a bunch of lies, it's because we want to minister to one another, and I have to speak truth to you to minister to you. And you have to speak truth to me to minister to me. I love it when somebody tells me the truth that I didn't know. Maybe some way I offended them or caused them to stumble, and I wasn't even aware of it. And they have the nerve to, in their guts to say, you know, I have something I've got to tell you. I've been holding this against you for a, a long time. I remember an older man did that to me a long time ago. And uh, I thought at first I felt like getting really defensive. But what I realized was this guy was manifesting love towards me. He was loving me enough to tell me the truth of how I had offended him. And then I had the opportunity to ask for his forgiveness and to be forgiven. That's so much better than carrying a grudge, isn't it? Can you imagine non-Christian people coming in among a church like ours and then finding out uh, that we're all at odds against each other? That we have these little parties that, you know, people that band together and they have certain attitude and they're against this party over here. That's horrible. What we need to, what we need to manifest as a, as a local church is, is exactly what Paul is saying, that we are one soul and we have one heart. And we actually do love each other. And yes, we know the truth about each other. (laughs) And we still love each other. This is the greatest place in the world to be when you're going through difficulties in life. Is being a local church. Because there's forgiveness. And there is comfort. And there is help among the people of God. Um, There are some real common... um, really common trials that people are going through today. Everywhere you go, every people, everybody you talk to, so common. And sometimes Christians feel like they got to hide it. They don't want anybody to know that their family is struggling with this. And yet what we have in the body of Christ is this ability to speak truth to each other and love one another as we go through these kinds of things. Some years back, when I was at Talbot Seminary back in the late 70s, we had Louis Palau came and spoke at chapel. And uh, maybe you pronounce it Louis. No, it's Louis. Louis Palau. He's a real well-known evangelist um, from South America. And I, wasn't, I didn't think I would be impressed at all. But here's what impressed me. As he began to share with us what God was doing in his life at this time and the direction he was taking him, he was not a smooth talker at all. And, and he, wasn't, he wasn't impressive in the way that he spoke and his vocabulary and all that. What was impressive is that he was in awe of Christ and the gospel. As he stumbled through this presentation, he was so moved by who Christ was. And, uh, you know, C.S. Lewis, in a book that he wrote 
a long time ago called The Great Divorce. This, listen to this. This is a paragraph out of that book. He says, Every poet and musician and artist, but for the grace of God, is drawn away from love of the thing he tells to love of the telling until deep down in hell they cannot be interested in God at all, but only in what they can say about him. That was very convicting to me when I read that. In other words, uh, we are to see and savor and serve Christ. We see him and we are in awe of him. We savor him and then we speak for him. But sometimes what happens to preachers is we get so enamored with the way that we say it that we're more, we are more interested in the way that we talk about Christ than we are in Christ and his glory. Uh, I have conversations with other preachers all the time. And uh, some of them, it's just like that. And I get into this little battle with them. We start talking and we're telling each other how we said something about Christ, how I, the message that I preached last week or something like that. And it's a crack up. It's like we both need to repent. It's ridiculous. What we say about Christ isn't near important as what we see in Christ. And so what we need, what Paul wanted to see in the lives of these people at Corinth and what I want to see in our lives is that our horizon is filled with the glory of Christ. That the way we treat each other is a reflection of the way we see Christ. Why do we love one another? Because we are people who've been saved by the grace of God. Not because we're accomplished. It's because God in his grace opened our eyes to the truth of the gospel. That if we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, he would bring us into the family and give us life indeed. And so even though we've been saved out of different circumstances, you know, there's one expression in the Old Testament. It says that God takes people off the ash heap and causes them to sit with princes. He's taken us off the ash heap. Now, the ash heap you were saved from might be better or worse than the ash heap I was saved off of. But we can be totally honest with each other and truthful and work together to encourage each other to believe the truth about Jesus Christ because that's what's really important. The most important thing about us isn't how accomplished we have become as Christians. What's important is, is my heart and my horizon in life, is it filled with the glory of Jesus Christ? Second, in, in two chapters later in this book, in Second Corinthians, he's going to tell us the thing that will transform your life is seeing Christ in his glory through the power of the Spirit. And so that's why Paul was, was so in, interested in making sure that his relationship was secure with these people that he wanted to equip for the work of the ministry. Because that's what you're called to. Let's pray. Our Father, we bow our hearts now and give you thanks for your great work of salvation in Christ Jesus. We are overwhelmed at the greatness of the gospel, the greatness of Christ, this eternal Son of God who is all-glorious, who when he ascended, he ascended through all the heavens and took his place at your right hand to rule over the kingdom of God. And we have been brought into relationship with you through him. We thank you that he humbled himself, 
died in our place, was raised from the dead, and now beckons us to come and believe. And we pray, Father, as believers in Christ, that we would live out of this truth so that we have opportunity to explain ourselves to this world when they notice there's something going on in those people. We pray that you would work in us and through us and that it would redound to the glory of Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.